Hello, everyone. I'm Philip Mead. And I'm Scott Stigmeyer. And I'm Danny Webb. And this is The Blackest Eyes, a place for intelligent conversation on horror movies. And today it's very exciting. We are launching a new approach to the podcast as we are going to begin recording in seasons. And this is the first episode of the first season. So the idea here is to have each season consist of about six episodes that are themed to a singular topic, such as a particular subgenre or a specific director and so forth. And guys, I think we've decided that season one is going to be dedicated to movies that deal with exorcism. So yeah, we're pretty excited about this, excited about the new direction. We hope you will stick with us. Be sure to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter for all the relevant updates. And of course, subscribe to the podcast through your favorite podcast catcher. So welcome to season one of The Blackest Eyes, guys. This is uh, pretty exciting. So I'm glad you all are here. How's everybody doing? Doing good. I'm out yeah, in California. Doing well. doing well. Well, guys, I thought a good way to start this first season is to ask about your feelings on exorcism movies in general. Since we are dedicating this first season to exorcism, uh, I thought, hey, let's just talk about it in general for a moment. And we're going to be discussing some movies that are great maybe discussing some other movies that aren't so great. But I'd love to hear your general thoughts on exorcism films. And are you a big fan? If so, why? Are they just another genre to you? You take it or leave it? And if so, why is that? And a third question might be, how important do you think exorcism films have been in the history of horror, uh, you know, at least in the last 40, 50 years, uh, as we've seen the development of the genre and so forth. So, Daniel, why don't we start with you? What are your feelings on exorcism movies, and how important are they to you in the history of horror? The uh, I, I, I've got a sort of a mixed feeling about it. The Exorcist itself was hugely influential in me becoming a horror fan. It was one of the first films that actually scared me and taught me that I like to be scared and had me seeking out other films that would scare me. And uh, I also really, really enjoy Exorcist 3. It's one of my all-time favorite films. I think it is incredibly underrated. So I have some love of the Exorcist franchise. Uh, you notice I skipped over number two, which is really bad. Um, however, I don't... If I see a new movie coming out and it's an Exorcism movie, it, it's very much not going to catch my attention unless there's something really clever you know about it something different about it as as far as the the genre as a whole it, it, it's not among my favorite subgenres. okay that's interesting I, I thought it would maybe be higher up for you scott what about you i think you really like exorcism movies don't you i i like them but they are overdone uh, there's too many and there's not that many takes you can do on it i mean there's there's a lot of similarities. There have been some creative twists and turns in the history of recent history of exorcism movies, which I'm sure we'll talk about in 
future episodes, but that's I, I, I liked them, and now I'm kind of tired of them. I do like The Exorcist. It was a very influential film for me. Um, we, you know, we were talking before we went on that um, for me, some of the movies that really got me sort of into horror when I was younger were part of this sort of Satanism kind of movies like The Omen or Rosemary's Baby and even The Exorcist. Of course, when I saw them, it was just, it was on television. I didn't see them like on cable or anything. So I didn't, you know, it was later when I saw sort of the unexpurgated versions. But so it's important to me. It got me kind of into horror, but I think it can be overdone and has been. Ah, I think that's a fair critique. I enjoy the films primarily because they deal with a subject that very much interests me. I'm a pastor. I'm a Baptist pastor. And, you know, exorcisms within Baptist history is obviously not something that is prevalent. Baptists don't have pastors who are specifically ordained to handle demonic possession. And I'm assuming uh, no other denomination, you know, uh, trains people up in the art of exorcism. But Baptists in particular probably would push back against the notion, maybe even more so, I would say definitely more so than Lutheran or Presbyterian, because Baptists are the denomination that's more afraid of looking Catholic than any other <laughs> denomination. So anything that's even remotely associated with that, so often we go as far as we can go to the other direction, lots of times in ways that are not healthy. But in this area, though, demonic possession, you can't read the Bible and not believe that there was a period of time and that that period of time perhaps uh, continues where there is the reality of possession. So I'd be curious, Scott, just real quickly, who uh, Scott is a professor at Concordia University in Irvine, California. That is a Lutheran school. You've been a Lutheran pastor at a couple parishes. Um, what is the general idea, the general take within the Lutheran church at large as to the possibility not only of possession but also of exorcism what would a what would the lutheran church have to say about that so i'll i'll, I'll speak representing sort of traditional lutheranism there's um uh, some branches of modern lutheranism are very liberal and probably have a totally different answer than what i'm going to give so this is sort of the traditional uh if you want to say conservative sort of Lutheran answer. And that is that um, the devil is real and uh, demonic powers are real. And there's, there's definitely openness to the possibility of demon possession even today. Like you said, Jesus does all sorts of exorcisms. The apostles do some. And, uh, and church history is filled with some examples uh, of that and uh, so lutherans typically are, are open to that possibility i do know some lutheran pastors who um, have been involved with um, exorcisms or something like it but like you mentioned we don't exactly get a class in seminary on how to do exorcisms mm -hmm. we too even though <laughs> you know compared to baptists you know most lutheran practices are probably seen as, as fairly Catholic in a lot of ways, mm -hmm. but we too have sort of a what I what I term romophobia. We don't uh -huh. want to be seen as sort of Romish, um, but yeah. So we don't have like a a, 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 um, a specifically written ritual like the Catholic Church does that you have to use. Um, 
But interestingly, in my branch of Lutheranism, there's been a lot more interest in that. There's been a lot more uh, research, and we've had popular books written in our from our denominational publishing company, uh, publishing house, on demon possession and exorcism. Mm-hmm. I think it's coming from experiences of missionaries. But anyway, that's my longer answer than you probably needed. No, it's great. It's really interesting. And you know, ask Danny here in Eastern Kentucky, what we have for the most part in Eastern Kentucky is an extremely strong dispensational missionary minded approach to the gospel, to church life. Absolute 100% belief in the inerrancy of the scriptures. If the Bible says it, then it happened. A very literal approach to the scriptures, uh, I know, for the most part. I'm speaking in generalities here in Eastern Kentucky. So how would you say, for the most part, Christians where you are, Danny, would understand the the possibility of possession and even exorcism? I would say, actually, we were, we were going to talk about, you know, the importance of, of the genre and I think because so many branches of Christianity see this as a possibility where maybe they wouldn't see other uh, supernatural things as possible, that a lot of people find, a lot of religious people and in this area would find, you know, exorcism movies one of the scariest types of movies. I've actually heard from students, I hear from my wife, she absolutely will not watch a movie that involves demonic possession. Hmm. It is, the possibility that it could actually happen is, it makes it way too real. And I, and I would expect that that is probably true among, you know, this largely fundamentalist uh, community that I live in. And they wouldn't watch it because it rings so true, or they would find, or no, or they would find it frightening, and you know, and they would enjoy it because they see it that it, you know, they feel like it could be true in a way that they might not feel like a ghost movie is scary because it just seems silly to them. Yeah, yeah, but even that though, it, wouldn't you say that there are in Kentucky, Tennessee, but it definitely in the eastern parts of both of those states, it seems like there is a a really heavy population, if you will, of stories that are supernatural based, the haunting of certain places and the legends of haunted houses and the appearance, you know, the appearance of apparitions and uh, the history of a particular street or a particular house. It, it seems to be more prevalent in the eastern part of Tennessee and Kentucky uh, than in the rest of the state. And any idea on why that is? I actually do not, though we talk about it quite a bit. Uh, there are, you're absolutely right that there are so many haunted places and, uh, you know, people discussing, uh, you know, the histories of hauntings and this, you know, ghost that walks these railroad tracks. And, uh, yeah, that, you know, you know, someone died in that house. I hear stuff right. like that so constantly. Um, but I, and we're storytellers. And I wonder if that's, Mm. what it comes down to mm. um uh, the appalachians are just full of storytellers that uh, we like our stories i know bob bobby and mason that's not right joyce carol oates once said about the people of appalachia is that you had to love any group that instead of set, saying lie says tell a story right? <laughs> and, and and that really does capture us quite a bit everybody here is telling stories and ghost stories are fun and interesting so that that might explain it 
Well, today, as we've alluded to a couple of times, we're going to be talking about The Exorcist, the one that kind of started it all, 1973, William Friedkin, a movie that has just absolutely transcended in some ways even the genre of horror and certainly the subgenre of exorcism. Uh, it is a tremendous hit, appealed to so many people for a variety of reasons that we can talk about. But first, let's give a very, very brief, we don't need to go into too much detail, but a, a brief plot synopsis, and I think our good friend Scott's going to do that for us. So, man, tell us what happened in The Exorcist. Okay, so a synopsis of The Exorcist. The movie begins with Ellen Burstyn, the actress who plays Chris McNeil, an actress. So the, 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 the mom of the story is Chris McNeil. She's from L.A. She's a famous movie star. And she goes to Washington, D.C., and she's at Georgetown University where she's filming a picture. And she's a single mom, and she has her daughter with her, and they are renting a house. And her daughter is played uh, famously by Linda Blair, 12 years old. Well, she's supposed to be 12, I think. Linda Blair might have been 13 or 14. And while they're there, they begin to have some phenomena, strange things happen in the house. There are noises. And um, the, the girl, her name is Reagan, she has found in this house they're renting a Ouija board and has been playing with it and has identified some an entity or a being that she calls Captain Howdy that's talking to her through the Ouija board. But her mother is not religious or, or doesn't believe in supernatural things, and so she doesn't think of it as probably more than just an innocent game. But as strange things continue to happen around Reagan, even things that are that that Chris, her mother, would find very difficult to explain. The bed is shaking, stuff like that. But she eventually goes to some physicians she starts to have. She goes to a regular doctor, and they end up doing a number of tests, neurological tests and so forth, on, on Reagan to see why she's um, acting out. It's, you know, because she's using foul language, she's being aggressive, things that are out of character. And the symptoms just keep getting worse and more bizarre as time goes on. So they try everything that medical science can provide. They, they try drugs. They sedate her. They run tests. They think it's a, a brain lesion. Nothing really factors out or plays out well. So they go to a psychiatrist. That doesn't end well. So <laughs> she's me mom is meeting with this group of physicians and they kind of tongue-in-cheek almost recommend that she might want to seek someone out from the church to do an exorcism. They think it would just be a psychosomatic sort of thing, the power of suggestion. But mom, uh, Chris McNeil, is completely at the end of a rope. She's very terrified about uh, what's happening to her daughter. So the other main character that we've got up up through this part is um, Father Damien Karras, and he is a psychiatrist. He's a Jesuit, and he is a uh, his specialty or his practice is to uh, minister to the the priests there at Georgetown University, it's a Jesuit school, and um, somehow she links up with him. He's a psychiatrist, and she says she wants an exorcism. Well, he's kind of a skeptic, and he doesn't necessarily believe in that anymore. He thinks that's um, medieval and that the church doesn't do that. But he goes to see Reagan as a psychiatrist and he begins to observe strange phenomena 
um, things that are hard to explain medically. And so even he becomes semi-convinced that, that an exorcism is the only thing. But he has to get the approval of the bishop in order to do an exorcism, which is what he attempts to do. And the bishop, however, recommends that uh, the main priest, uh, Father Karras, can assist, but he recommends this uh, priest, older priest who's been a missionary and has apparently done exorcisms when he was a missionary in Africa, but he's mainly an archaeologist who's been uh, digging up things in, in Iraq. He's a scholar. So his name is, um, let's see, uh, Marin, Father Marin. And this is played by Max von Sydow. Very excellent role. And the two of these priests, the elder and the younger, um, do the rite of exorcism with, with Reagan. And, um, you know, she, you know, it's the famous stuff where she's, you know, vomiting pea green soup. She's cursing at them. She's being sexually lewd. She she knows things supernaturally that that Reagan couldn't possibly know about the priests and their personal lives. And Father Marin, he he has a heart attack. His his you know he's older, and um, he he ends up the stress of the ongoing exorcism apparently kills him. So he falls down. And uh, the younger priest uh, is, is to carry on, and he does. And at the, at, to, to sum it up, at the end, he basically shouts at the devil, come into me, come into me, or something. And then and, and that happens. He runs, jumps out the window in order to destroy the power the demon has over the girl. He jumps out the window, falls to his death at the bottom of a flight of stairs. And the final scene is of Reagan, who doesn't seem to remember anything that has happened, and she's uh, recovering. And mom, and they're they're leaving. They're going back. They're going home or going somewhere. And one of the other priests who'd kind of been hanging around and socializing with them comes by to see them. He was also a friend of the priest, Karis, who died jumping out the window. And this other priest comes and. Um, um, there's a there's a I think an important moment where um, where there's um, where Chris gives a medal a religious um, symbol to this to this priest to um, we'll maybe we'll discuss the meaning of that but then he just kind of walks off into the into the sunset and we're um, we're just left to believe that that this that this is resolved I think I'm conf I'm thinking of there's a, an extended ending, I think, with the um, director's cut. So we may talk a little bit more about that later. But that's basically it. Okay, thank you. Good job. Sure. One question I want to ask right from the beginning here. The film was released in 1973, some 47 years ago. So we're nearing the 50th anniversary of The Exorcist. I'm sure there's going to be uh, some repackaging, remastering, you know, something that will happen with the 50th anniversary. And that's always exciting. I think I own at this point, if I'm not mistaken, I think it's 12 copies of the original Halloween because every time it's remastered, I always get the new one, which is really stupid. No need to do that, but I do. You guys probably do that with some of your favorite movies too. How well does 47 years later, how well does the movie, after having rewatched it here, hold up to contemporary uh, expectations for you know, a movie experience. When you watch The Exorcist, does it feel dated? Does it feel like they're using 
certain you know mechanisms within the film from the 70s that just simply do not relate to a modern audience or is it still fresh uh, does it still work danny what do you think 47 years later after you watch the exorcism again i think it still works absolutely perfectly you know scott mentions the uh, the doctors and the psychiatrists and all the medical scenes yeah, the, the iconography there and stuff and the actual equipment and all that stuff does seem incredibly dated, even the procedures. But I think other than that section, uh, the film holds up incredibly well. Freakin's an amazing director. He was innovative for his time. If you read about some of the stuff he did with uh, the French Connection and how he sort of tricked the camera people into shots and all that stuff. You, 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 can, you can feel that kind of artistry in his, his work in this movie. Cinematography holds up. The acting holds up. Uh, I, I mean, I think it, and it's beautifully, beautifully shot on, you know, uh, everything is so high quality and I think it holds up for, and, and I, I will say this, I have a little experience teaching it and uh, students always react to it very well. What do you think, Scott? I, I really think so, too. I think it holds up very well. I just watched it this afternoon again, and I was surprised about how much of it I remembered. I mean, I, I remembered every every practically every, every scene. I do think it holds up. The performances are really good. The pace is fine. The only thing for me, the only thing that seems um, a bit of a disconnect is the head turning scene, the famous scene where Reagan's sitting on her bed, and her head kind of goes around, and she looks... Uh, twists all the way to the back and she speaks in the voice of um, a friend of the family who had died and uh, to me that was a little corny looking but everything else was shocking just as shocking and powerful as you know i'm sure it was in 1973 for me and you're absolutely right by the way that scene does look really cheesy well let's talk about that though i had that as a question later in the show notes here because in some ways those who just have a superficial understanding of the exorcist that's the scene they think of isn't it ironic that the film as a whole though takes the subject matter incredibly seriously mm-hmm. so it's it's in some ways a little unfortunate that the scene that the movie is most known for is a scene that doesn't really capture the seriousness of the underlying subject of spirituality and possession and doubt and faith that the rest of the film so perfectly and beautifully captures uh i don't know if there's really commentary on that other to say it's kind of ironic your all thoughts it's kind of sad right uh but i don't that scene the first time i saw this film as a as a child basically um i guess nine years old um that scared that was the scariest thing to me that the body horror part mm-hmm. of it I thought was absolutely frightening and it doesn't, it does not hold up. It, it seems very mechanical now. It doesn't seem, you know, it doesn't seem to really have a, a flesh presence. Uh, but uh, yeah, you, you're exactly right that it can, I don't know, I, though I will say this. I don't know if it seems campy. I don't, I, I, I think it just looks a little uh, dated. Yeah. I, 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 yes. I don't think it's trying to be campy. It doesn't look like it's, you know, like they're poking fun or something, or they're trying to be kind of tongue in cheek. I think it's, I think it's meant to be serious. I think oh, yes. the movie Absolutely. is yeah, very yeah. serious. It just looks like a doll to me. Yeah. yeah. I, absolutely. I don't yeah. think they were poking fun at anything. I just think mm-hmm. it's the one time they may have missed. No, I, yeah, I was just saying that I don't think it's so bad that it comes right. off as funny to students. I think you know, it's in a, or I'm sorry, to new viewers, 
<laughs> teacher. Um, <laughs> I think that it's, uh, it, I think that they, they look at it and go, Ooh, that looked a little, a little rough, but they, I, I don't think it took them completely out of the, uh, you know, the seriousness of, of, of the horror. Uh, people are usually pretty engaged in that scene. This is going to sound again like a strange thing to say concerning the exorcism, which is known for some of its excesses, but in some ways the film also uh, provides some minimalistic approaches that I think allows it to hold up so well 50 years later. And one of the ways that it does that is with, by holding back a real restraint on continuing to pump a soundtrack through some of the more disturbing scenes. In fact, what makes it resonate, what makes it so real in some ways, is the fact that we are there with these guys and all we're experiencing is the sound of the horror itself. If there would have been a, an early 70s themed horror track going underneath some of that stuff, I just have to wonder if today we would be saying, well, it's a good film, but I don't know. There's just something that seems somewhat dated. So maybe some comments on that when they are in their, the most intense, and even Tubular Bells, the famous theme song for The Exorcist, that, that, that strange tempoed uh, kind of disconcerting song, that only shows up a couple of times in a very small very uh, small portion. You don't get much even of the theme song, so to speak, of The Exorcist. So some thoughts on during The Exorcism itself were really left to the sounds of the horror that's taking place in the room. Danny, your thoughts? I think, uh, you know, again, I think Freakin's kind of brilliant about stuff like that. And it, horror is so tied to score. And he just basically threw that away and let you know the the rest of the sound design uh, stand out the layers of sound in this thing uh, I, I was re-watching it that's a, a, a quick uh, history lesson for from for personal history I, I love the I saw this film as a, a young child again eight or nine years old and it scared me to death and it became my favorite horror film I then watched it as a college freshman with a bunch of people in the dorm and it read like a comedy, but we just laughed and thought it looked, it was so, you know, dated and awful and terrible. Uh, and I was like, man, I can't believe I really thought that used to think that film was scary. Cut to just a few years later, some friends of mine had got studio headphones and had rented the laser disc for the exorcist. And we sat down and watched it on the small little TV with those headphones and could hear the, you know, the slaughterhouse sounds that they recorded and all these things layered together. And the film was frightening again. The hmm. sound design just added so much to the movie and the decisions with sound. It was probably the first time I really noticed that as a student of a film that, that how important sound could be and how you can make decisions like just not having a score or really ratcheting the score down and still have a very effective movie and horror movie even. Yeah, yeah that, that's yeah. great. Go ahead, Scott. Yeah, I, you know, so I didn't, um, I think I think maybe you guys notice the soundtrack a little more than I do typically. This one was, the exorcism scene was so visual it was so atmospheric. I, um, and, and the sound that I heard were the grumblings and groanings that, that Reagan was making. Animal noises, um, vo different voices. Um, she was 
you know, making all sorts of lewd sounds too. I mean, so that's, and then you've got Max von Sydow, you know, shouting this, this ritual and he's got a voice man that will to contend with. And, and, and so there was good um, sound design without needing to have a sort of a musical background. Yeah, and I think that really holds up. And I'm going to talk about Psycho in just a minute when I ask a question. But, of course, the famous shower scene in the 1960 Hitchcock mm-hmm. thriller Psycho, initially he didn't want sound. Mm-hmm. He didn't want a soundtrack behind that. He just wanted the raw sound of the, the knife coming and the stabbing and whatever. And you say, well, a movie like The Exorcist, maybe it would have worked. But they convinced, they played it. They did it. They did a soundtrack behind it with the classic theme. And Hitchcock said, okay, I'm wrong. We have to do it that way. But, of course, that theme, uh, Bernard Herrmann, so transcends any time period. It doesn't sound like a a 60s theme or a 70s or anything else, that it was so powerful and so beautiful. But what you said, Scott, I think is right because uh, there's so many layers here. You've got what always just sounds like this rumbling of the demonic. We're not even sure what it is. Animal sounds, just this this almost grainy atmosphere of sound that's always permeating the room. And then you have her actually talking. And then you have the sound of the bed shaking. And then you have the priest talking. And then you even get the sound of some of the elements like uh, undoing a holy water. Uh, all of those things make this... Uh, cacophony as it were of a soundtrack in and of itself that was just so powerful and i was listening to it with headphones as well did you watch it with headphones or just on a television scott i just watched it on my on my laptop i did not have headphones Headphones. when i watched it yeah i saw on headphones as well and you you do get all of those elements layered on top of one another that's that's very very frightening you know the the era of the late 60s early 70s uh, seem to be really ripe for supernatural elements, supernatural themes. There's one thing in particular that I always think about during this time, and that is that a heavy metal band was formed that was called Black Sabbath. Uh, so we have, of course, Ozzy Osbourne, if you don't know. And anybody, again, who just has a supernatural or a superficial understanding of Ozzy Osbourne, they're going to think Satanism, right? <laughs> As the stories of batting, biting heads off of bats and uh, all of this kind of thing. And this rushes to the forefront in the late 70s. And then something very much in my camp. And, you know, I don't know. I want to ask you about this, Scott, in terms of the Lutheran Church. But do you know who Hal Lindsey is? Oh, sure. Okay, how Lindsay writes the late great planet Earth with all of these supernatural ends of the Earth religious uh, impact that, that transcended just Christianity. This, the, these ideals were now uh, across our country and even worldwide wondering what all of this means and how all these things are working together. And then the novel and the movie then kind of lands right in the middle of all of this. You know, would the exorcist have worked Mm. 10 years earlier or would it have been as powerful 10 years later you know uh, i've heard the presidential historians sometimes say that presidential greatness is not always a reflection of the abilities of the president as it is when the president came to power sometimes things just come together at exactly the right time and and there you are danny i'd love to get your take on this as someone who, who teaches how important was 1973 for the exorcist that is a fair question that i have not thought about um you're absolutely right that you know this is the uh a time of tons of the 
demonic uh, concept, fear of, uh, there's a lot of fear of the end of the world there, right? The nuclear threat, uh, Cold War scares, and thinking about the extra, uh, the, the afterlife and, you know, what lies beyond. And um, so it, it, it's definitely a product of its time. Uh, I don't know um, if it had, if there was no exorcist, but there was then an exorcist like film in 83, if it would have been a huge effect. Uh, I mean, well, you got the omen, you've got so many movies at the time that dealt with it. Uh, I, I was trying to think when you mentioned how Lindsay, uh, there's a, a really bad horror movie that was inspired by a different Hal Lindsay book that was about people having their visions of hell when they committed suicide, tried to commit suicide. And I cannot think of the name of that. But anyway, yeah, it was definitely a product of its time. Uh, and that would probably explain why it was, to that point, one of the biggest hit films of all time. Hmm. Uh, and certainly had an effect on the horror genre because Hollywood saw that you could make an enormous amount of money with horror films. And and to this day, horror is you know, a driving force in, in the box office. Yeah, yeah you, you, you mentioned how Lindsay and the late great planet Earth, there's something about the 1970s when there was this sort of uh, a lot in the, not just in Christianity, not just in evangelicalism or fundamentalism, where there's often sort of a premillennialist or dispensationalist end of the world kind of thing. You know, the left behind books that came out in the 80s or 90s, Tim LaHaye. Right. But the, yeah, so there was a, a this... Um, the Antichrist is coming, there's going to be a rapture, that it wasn't just churchy people that kind of were tuned into that. It was cultural. Uh, Lutherans to, are, are amillennialists, so, so, you know, we observe, you know, how Lindsay and all that, but have sort of a different take on the book of Revelation. But for, for, something, for some reason, the 1970s and, you know, maybe the 80s and 90s too, had sort of a fascination with... Um, the millennium or the return, the second coming and the antichrist and all those sorts of things. And you see it in the films and the satanic panic of the 1980s and so on. Well, if anyone is familiar with church life, you know, youth group ministries in the 60s and 70s really began to boom. And it is during this time where we begin to see what I would consider to be propaganda for youth groups and for young people in church ministry. This is when all of the films began to be made about how the book of Revelation was going to bring, you know, uh, the, the beasts in Revelation were helicopters and tanks and uh, everything was going to be overthrown because of this uh, dispensational take uh, and, and the rapture. And we, and we still see elements of that today, but it was huge mm -hmm. in the 70s. It just seems like all of those things came together at just the right moment for this novel and for uh, the movie to to really, really take off. And by the way, just so you know, in Baptist life, all millennialism is becoming more and more of a hit. So interesting. Isn't that interesting? Well, you see, my so, you know, short, short detour here. So when I grew up, my family is Lutheran, but um, my cousins and extended family are Southern Baptists from Arkansas. And so, um, you know, we spent a lot of time together. And I kind of got, in, you know, in the 80s, I kind of heard a lot about, um, from them and from their family, or their church life. Not that it was sort of a fixation, but it was there. And, um, but yeah, I've kind of sensed that they've moved on, that that's not sort of the central, a central thing for them. So I didn't, that's interesting to me what you said, Philip. I didn't know that. 
it's it's just funny. It's almost like an inside joke with with Baptist. Is whenever you start talking about eschatology or the Book of Revelation, the next word out of your mouth has to be end time charts. <laughs> we have all charts. these charts, right, that show you what the progression is going to look like, and when the rapture will take place, and then the second coming, and then the marriage supper of the Lamb, and you know, here's it's all charted out for you real nicely, which of yeah. course has nothing to do with the letter that John writes at all. But yeah. anyway, we're getting off on yeah. things that aren't related. <laughs> but, it's, but I do think it's relevant for background. All right. Well, we're going to take just a quick break, but we'll be back in just a few seconds for more discussion on the Exorcist. and you would like to support us, you can visit our Patreon account at www.patreon.com forward slash the blackest eyes. And for $5 a month, you will enjoy early access to the episodes and uh, special bonus episodes where we talk about random things in the horror genre and about worldview and philosophy and all the other good stuff we like talking about. So thanks for all the help. Let's get back to the program. At the time, uh, some the, the the critics, of course, came out. This is just a, a historical piece here. When the Exorcist was released, the critics were, were large and in charge, and they came out and they basically called the film religious porn. Hmm. And of course, you alluded to in your synopsis that there are uh, some very strong sexual scenes uh, involving what is the most holy of objects, a crucifix. And I can only imagine. I, it was, it disturbed me to watch it. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I'm a pastor, so this is, of course, uh, probably going to get me maybe a little more than the average viewer. But it disturbed me, guys. What would that have been like in 1973 to watch that? It still amazes me that that scene is in the film, and and was I mean it was controversial at the time, but this film even opened in England. England would you know didn't let anything open back then you know there were you know there was so such a uh, panic about the the content of uh, horror and exploitation films and um i just it amazes me every time that scene comes up i'm like well that's really i can't believe that made it through the i mean there, mm-hmm. i know there's no you know, there's no you know censorship to speak of at that period in american cinema but geez it's a rough scene it remains rough whether you're religious or not, I mean, that is a absolutely sort of iconic and sort of devastating scene. Yeah. Part of what it makes it so offensive and shocking is the age of Reagan. She's mm. supposed to be 12, and the actress was 13 or 14. Um, and I know that there was, you know, the, some of the voice, uh, some of the things that, were, that Reagan said were a different actress voicing over nearly but, all of it actually yeah but but the actions and the context and the situation 
um, as far as I know, is still Linda Blair. And that is a little bit, that's what I think of. I'm thinking, wow, that's really weird at best. Well, uh, and uh, you know, Linda Blair was, when she got the part, they had a trouble casting Regan for various reasons. They didn't want anyone that was familiar to the audience. So, you know, all the teen idols and stuff were out of the picture and they, they, they couldn't find anyone they're happy with. And she came out of nowhere. Her mom just brought her in and managed to get her in front of uh, the studio. But uh, they asked, you know, they were worried, can she handle it? And they asked her if she knew what the exorcist was. And she had read it. And uh, he said, you know, do you, do you know some of the you know stuff that happens? He said, oh, yeah. And she just went through, you know, this, this, this. And then uh, she masturbates with the crucifix. Mm-hmm. And the director said, do you know what, you know, that what masturbation is? And she explained it to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's like, oh, I think we can do this. So, you know, she was well aware. So I, I, I don't know. I, I find it all really uh, just almost stunning that it made it through the uh, that wasn't more of a cultural just you know, reaction to it. Yeah. Hmm. Talking about some of the overdubs there where uh, it wasn't Linda's actual voice, you know, the film as a whole is heavily overdubbed. And I guess if there is talk going back to the discussion on dating it again, using headphones, I think you could tell even more that some of just the basic conversations between the priests and things like this, there is a reliance on, on a very strong overdubbing that I think is has been mastered perhaps a little bit more in cinema these days. Did you all pick up on that at all? Did you notice that in the, the reviewing or not so much? Uh, I, I, I usually don't pay much attention to that because there's just, there's so much ADR in, in movies. Uh, uh, I just assume it's happening, but uh, uh, Free can definitely relies heavily on, you know, doing the, you know, post post filming, uh, dialogue so that uh, again i didn't notice it being i think it was pretty typical for its time period this is going to sound really bizarre because i there's actually a movie as i'm watching the exorcist uh yesterday there's another movie that came to mind that it sounded just like in terms of the conversational overdubbing just just normal conversation like i said between the priests do you guys by chance this is this is gonna be random but do you by chance remember uh, a film directed by francis ford coppola in 74 so it's just a year later so still using the same techniques probably starring gene hackman called the conversation oh yeah do you remember that movie oh yeah that's a yeah that's one of my all-time favorites yeah real and the way the overdub uh in the conversation is they're uh, doing the you know listening to the conversation and you uh, the way the audio sounds throughout that whole movie uh, reminds me so much of what I heard as I was listening to The Exorcist. I know that's random, but it, it, if you went back and watched the conversation, I think you would notice some real parallels there, which is interesting to me because it's it's seventy four. It's right in that wow. same era. Um, what's the film ultimately getting at here? So I don't think I'm going out on a limb. Maybe I am. I don't think I am though to suggest that the movie is more about Father Karras than it is about Reagan. Well, let's just start there. Would you all agree or disagree with that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Sure. And and even more, you know, than the devil or anything like that. So, as a pastor, I found I love this character. I love Father Karras. I he's so good. You know, his struggle with faith, his his transparency with his struggle 
not trying to be super spiritual when he really is going through. He, he loses. Did you say this in your synopsis that he lost his mom? I, I didn't mention it, so go for it. So that plays fairly heavily into the psychological warfare that he receives uh, from Reagan during the exorcism. Uh, and that just continues to tack on to the fact that he's already worrying about how do I even land here in the priesthood? At one point with a conversation with a colleague, he's saying maybe I need to be reassigned because this is no longer landing with me in ways that it once did. So well acted, so meaningful, handled with care, without throwing religion under the bus. That, that's one of the things I love about this movie. And it just gives me a little bit excited because whenever you think about the church, uh, a spiritual presence Definitely the Catholic Church today because of all of the controversy that has happened. In most films, all of that is placed in a very skeptical light. Like this is actually not something that's respectable or there's something nefarious that might be going on over here in this corner with religion. Every Law and ever, uh, Order episode that ever deals with a priest, the guy's always crazy. Nobody ever thinks anything good about religion in modern day film, unless it's, it's a very specific uh, approach. But they don't go that direction in, in The Exorcist. The priests, for the most part, are respected. There's not a lot of punching at the church at large. As a matter of fact, there's a reliance on it in order to solve the problem. And the priest was so real. And I, I just fell in love with his character all over again. Feedback on that, you know, with just Father Karras and what the film's trying to ultimately say about his faith. What do you think, Scott? So, um, so I've read the novel. I read the novel a number a uh, few years ago, and from and so I did a little background. and And you guys probably know this, but um, William Peter Blatty was a student at Georgetown in the 1940s, and he read in the newspaper about an you know an actual exorcism or something that had happened in a Maryland uh, suburb or something like that. It fascinated him. So he wrote, he's, he professes faith in Christ and, or did. And he wrote the book, as I understand it, as a way to try to make this real to people. He meant it to be serious, not unnecessarily sensational or titillating, although it, although it, you know, it is shocking and in your Mm -hmm. face in a lot of ways, but he is trying to take it seriously. And, um, I've, from also from what I've read is that the Catholic Church was um, to some extent involved in the making of the film had approved the script and there is an actual Jesuit priest um, in, who's in the film he plays Father Dyer the friend of Karis so there there is um, and you know we've we've probably all read too that after the people saw the movie a lot of people were going to church and you know, there was a lot more interest in Catholicism or Christianity um, because of the movie. And I, I think that was, I don't know about Friedkin, but I think that was Blatty's intent, to, uh, you know, on some level. You know, I, about Blatty, I've heard that um, when he saw Rosemary's Baby, um, he was so interested mm-hmm. in the movie. He was so drawn into the film. And then, do you remember, this is Roman Polanski's movie, remember at the end, contact, the red eyes appear. Mm-hmm. Remember, that's how the film ends. And Blatty apparently hated that and said it had such a power, and then it goes with this red contact lens, you know, spooky gotcha. And, and 
apparently he's like that's not the devil that's <laughs> there's we got to take this serious we got to let our people see what is actually going on and apparently the exorcist came out of uh, some of those uh, all the themes you were just talking about but his his dislike of the ending of rosemary's baby isn't that wow. interesting yeah wow well did you have you guys read about this case that um is supposedly based on this i read a little case. bit about it today actually and uh, 40th anniversary article well i mean the, the one of the reasons i'm a little bit interested in it is because the original case it was a boy not a girl and it was a german lutheran family they were hmm. part of my tribe they were part of the lcm lutheran church missouri synod they didn't know what to do with it so it ended up going to st louis at um um, St. Louis University, where they're again Jesuits, and they got involved. But there is sort of a you know minor Lutheran connection in there. So I've kind of been interested in learning about the the original story. Well, if, you know, I don't know if we want to go off on that, but but you know, there is actually a case that was um, supposed to be, and there there've been books written on this, and there was a priest, and there's a diary that this priest kept, and supposedly a lot of that detail makes it into the movie. Speaking of some of the ironies again, you know how the the roles here in some ways are reversed. Looking as we're talking about the priesthood and taking material seriously, what we have here with the mom, a layperson who is not even necessarily a, a person of faith. She's a famous actress. At one point, a, a police detective is trying to get her autograph for himself, and but the layperson is trying to convince the priest. That the exorcism is necessary. <laughs> I loved that scene. It's, yeah. it's such a beautiful picture of the of the film as a whole. Here is a guy who's struggling, and he's not even willing to say, "Well, yeah, a, a spiritual uh, ritual known as an exorcism is exactly what you need." She's trying to convince him. Oh, just so amazing. Yeah. yeah. Oh, let's talk about the ending for just a minute. I told you I was going to mention Psycho again, and so. Everybody knows the ending of Psycho, right? It's typically considered one of the weaker parts of the film because you get this long explanation so that every loose end is perfectly connected and tied up and you can go home saying, oh, well, now I know exactly what happened in Psycho and it all makes sense. Wow, what a cool movie. What happened at the end of The Exorcism? So the demon comes out of Linda and into Father Karras, for some reason, he, he tells it to. We're not exactly sure why it obeyed him at that point. Maybe he was already beaten down after the hours of the exorcism previous. Who knows? But it comes into him, and Karras still has enough, as you said, uh, foresight to throw himself out the window so that this would be taken care of once and for all. But it doesn't really necessarily wrap up nice and neat what we're supposed to take from that, does it? Is it, what exactly just happened? Who actually won? Uh, are we just supposed to say that the demon is the one who is victorious? He has killed two priests and he's ransacked a home. Or is Father Karras victorious in saving the girl? And what does it have to say about spirituality and a larger picture? How do you teach the ending of the movie, Danny, to your students? Or do you? You know, very strangely, the the ending isn't a big focus uh, in any of our discussions, though. Uh, so, so I would have to think about it on my own. Um, it's a pretty good day for the demon overall. 
right? He's he's checked a lot of things off of his list. Um, it's definitely not an upbeat ending. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. What what do you all think? So there's a you remember okay when Karis first visits Reagan in her bedroom, he's there as a psychiatrist, not as a priest so much, and he's in he's um, interrogating. Reagan or the presence or the per split personality or whatever. And he says, would you like there to be an exorcism? Or I think, I actually think Reagan says, what a splendid day for an exorcism. Yeah. yeah. And he says, would you like there to be an exorcism? And he says, oh, definitely. Reagan says, oh, definitely. Um, it'll bring us closer together. And, and Kara says, you and Reagan? And he's, and the demon says, no, me and you. So I, I kind of think um, Karis might have been the target here. Yeah. And what I've I've seen this movie a bunch of times, and what I've always thought is that Karis makes the ultimate sacrifice. He's 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 willing to die for this girl, and he's yeah. he's willing to uh, make a sacrifice of his own life. And so, in a way, the demon kills him. Yes, of course. But um, when he falls down at the bottom of the steps. The, and he's all broken and crumpled. His friend, Father Dyer, who's actually a priest, but this actor or Father Dyer character comes and pronounces a blessing on him, gives him yeah. sort of the last rise. So, as if to say, he's he he you know he's not in hell. He he's he's dying as a as a Christian. And then when Reagan comes out, and she's all fresh faced and doesn't remember anything, and. Um, when she's and then Dyer's there talking to them as they're moving out. Uh, Reagan looks at Dyer and they say something about her not remembering it. And but Reagan looks at Dyer and the camera focuses on his collar, yeah. the priest clerical, yeah. and she sees that, and then she uh, reaches up and kisses him. So I think that this is somehow trying to show they the church saved her. It cost it was costly. But the the faith or Christianity, or the you know, through the means of the church, saved her, and she's recognizing that in, in some subconscious level. That's how I read the end. Yeah, no, I'm brother. I'm with you almost to a, just to a T. That's uh, exactly what I'm thinking. I, I would maybe take it one step further, maybe maybe a step too far. <laughs> but when it comes to Christianity, what what do we say is the climatic moment where we know victory has been secured the cross right the cross and by extension the resurrection but at the moment of crucifixion there is an appearance of darkness prevailing as a matter of fact the whole sky turns dark and this is the darkest day in the history of the world right but actually, no, we call it Good Friday because salvation is coming now through a, a, a substitutionary self-sacrifice. So the very tenet of our faith is one that through sacrifice comes life. And what do we have here at the end? We have a self-sacrifice through which life is given. And you can even argue here that Father Karras finds his life finds his faith through sacrifice, which the great Diedrich Bonhoeffer says is the cost of discipleship. You sacrifice in order to experience true faith. 
And then the you know, I just loved it. They have the collar, and she gives him a kiss. Again, showing us how the church at large here is is looked upon very favorably in the film. And, um, so that that's kind of how I take it as well. And, and in Catholic theology, the notion of the priest is that the priest is a mediator. The priest is an important part of bringing the the blessings of God to the faithful. And so, you know, it it, it strikes me that maybe Karis while he was doubting his vocation earlier in the movie, not sure if he was doing any good, felt like a bad son, felt like he was wasting his life and he should be reassigned. He just didn't have it anymore. But he finds his vocation. He is the priest. He is the one who's willing to, to go into the breach for her. Not, and not to take it away from Christ, because they're certainly focused on Christ and his yes. power throughout the whole rite. But anyway, you know, I think there are all these little elements, spiritual, theological elements. It's a very theological movie. Mm-hmm. If we can, let's, let's talk about the beginning of the film and at the end, as you mentioned, uh, the the relic that was given to the priest at the end and at the beginning, Father uh, Marin is in Iraq and he's at a dig and he finds uh, a relic of a head of, of what I'm assuming is some kind of ancient Babylonian uh, god of some kind. And, uh, you know, it kind of made a point of it. He went and he trekked along the way in order to stand and look at this uh, statue, as it were, in the face. And there was this kind of stare down for a moment, a very intense thing. And then we moved to Washington, D.C. Uh, I don't know if I necessarily have a good idea of what that means and how that plays in. Either of you guys want to help me out on that? What was that all about? Well, I mean, if you read the later uh, works and, you know, the later movies and stuff, the, the implication is that the same demon that is in Regan is the demon that was, you know, that was being worshipped as a god in that based on that statue that was a Pazazu, I believe, is the demon's uh, name, and so. You but know, does the it, but does it, the movie make the connection for us? It, the it, extent the director's cut makes the connection. Okay. Yeah, the extended director's cut makes a connection. It has a lot more of the Iraq stuff and a lot more of the connection between Pazazu and the possession. Okay, well, that's helpful to know. Though I, I, didn't, I didn't watch the extended version. Yeah, well, you're better off not. Uh, most of that stuff just slows the film down and does not really add anything of value. So. But yeah, that, I, I believe that is... Scott, do you agree that is the implication? Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's what I think is trying to go on there. I don't know. So there's this Pizzazzo. What? And then, yes, he sees this um, this profane uh, uh, statue of this ancient god that upsets him. He sees it. He finds it as an archaeologist. And then he goes to like this cafe and they're serving him tea and he's all shaky like he's like his heart's going to fail and he has to take the nitroglycerin tablets it, it really shook him and then when you when the, we shoot to go back to Reagan Georgetown you remember the scene where the priest is going into the cathedral the nameless priest goes into the cathedral and he finds the desecrated statue of the virgin mary yeah it to, i don't know if if i'm reading too much into this but it looked like, um, you know, the way she was desecrated, you know, there were 
red blood, but there were also like appendages that could be like sexual organs. And Pazuzu had a very pronounced sexual organ. And so I wondered if that is sort of trying to say he's there as the same guy, but I might be interpreting that over much. Well, it makes sense. I, you know, he's looking at what clearly is an ancient god, and then now we have a, a possession. So, I mean, sure, okay, that's that must be what's in uh, Reagan. But I don't think, at least in the theatrical cut, there's there's. I mean, is that name even spoken of? What are you all calling it? Pazazu is is what the god was or the demon. How do uh, we? Is that said in the film? It is said in the extended cut. All right. Yeah, I, I don't remember. I'm that. just picking it up from stuff I read. It really um, well maybe. I don't know if it. I don't. Believe, I don't know if it said it in the. In, again, I did not watch the uh, theatrical cut for this recently. Yeah, mm-hmm. I don't think it does. Well, so when they begin the exorcism, or when when um, when Karis is there in Georgetown with the family and Father Marin Max von Sydow shows up. They meet for the first time, and and uh, Pastor Marin wants to immediately have the exorcism. And Karis, the psychiatrist, wants to say, well, don't you want me to explain the background, give you some context, talk about what, what I've discovered in my right. meetings with her? And, and, you know, first Marin kind of just brushes him off, and then, you know, Karis tries a second time to try to talk about it, and he just goes into it and says... Well, so far, I've you know, it's a split personality, and I've detected three personages. Right. And Marin stops him and says, there's only one. And that's the end of that. <laughs> they don't talk about it anymore, and they go up and do the right. So, I, you know, the identity of the demon, you know, he, he's just saying, look, we're going to go do battle with the devil. I, that's I, what I, I thought he was saying. I, yeah. When he says there's only one, I assumed he was talking about the devil. Yeah, I, I am. Uh, I'm looking at the script right now. I just did a quick search of the script, and uh, when she, I'd forgotten this image was even in there. But uh, the line is: the priests are again knocked to the floor by a shaking. Briefly, Regan lifts herself toward an apparition of the demon statue Pazazu. Uh-huh. Uh, and Pazazu, is, the statue is called the statue of Pazazu in the script earlier, but that's all, uh, you know, that that's not uh, hmm. that's not in the dialogue. It's in, st- oh, it's in yeah. the stage direction. Well, there, there's that famous, almost dreamlike scene when they're being knocked down, then they look over, and the demon is yeah. in the smoke beside the bed. Right, that really mm-hmm. haunting. Yeah, so that that's that's the, yeah connection there. And, and oh that, my goodness, wasn't that scary? I forgot. I actually had forgotten, and it scared the bejeebers out of me when Karis goes back in and he sees his mom on the bed. Mm-hmm. Oh gosh, that scared me. <laughs> <laughs> Terrifying. And that is I, again quick research, but that is Pazazu. It would have been a known. There, that is a real stat, real Mesopotamian god demon thing that people probably would have recognized that were aware of that so yeah. uh, so it, it is a an existing thing okay it was not cool. made up for the movie are there any other elements uh, danny specifically with you as you teach this with students and get dialogue going with them is there any other elements of the film that would be helpful for us to discuss i had i had a list we 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 got into a lot of it uh i we talk about the uh, the use of a young actress and you know, the kind of turmoil that uh, 
could have been caused and, you know, whether it's ethical to, you know, to do it the way they did it, the kind of thing. Um, this is not a school thing, but I had written down the Ouija board mm-hmm. as, as a very important sort of, this is one of the earliest films that uses Ouija board as sort of the, the way to get into a demonic, uh, get yourself into a bad demonic situation that becomes such a standard in horror from this point forward. Uh, the focus of so many horror films, uh, the battle of science and religion, I think is absolutely going on here, right? You, the, the first thing they do to treat it is try to, to use psychology, but science fails them and religion saves the day. Uh, another element that is, you know, this is a commercial for the for religion in general, but the Catholic Church specifically. Uh, it's an astronaut that she tells is going to tell them at the party, you know, you're going to die up there. Right? Mm-hmm. So there. There's definitely this science, religion, this sort of dichotomy thing going on. Um, we talked a little bit about the body horror of the possession itself and how, you know, that uh, exorcist just inspired so many things and uh, it may have had an impact on, you know, the growth of a horror, body horror as a genre, a genre I'm sure we're going to do a season on at some point. And that's all I had in my notes that's coming to mind. Oh, a lot of those the, details, you, like the Ouija board, were part of the original, I mean, the case that this is based on. Um, so Blatty didn't actually make up a lot of that. Some of the, in some of the phenomena, like the moving objects, the, the words that appear on her skin, um, you know, some of those sorts of, uh, you know, of course, in a movie, they, they you know, expand it. But a lot of those things are, um, are from the case that, that inspired Blatty. Right. Uh, I'm interested, this is probably not for this podcast, but it always interests me. The original case was a boy, right? Yeah, a teenage yeah. boy. Yeah. The, the, what what the uh, the effect and or the reason behind switching it to a girl for the movie is that mm. a little bit about the fact that we're more protective of, of women, of, of, uh, of girls than we are boys, and we needed her to be more uh, sympathetic or, I don't know, that's again, I don't it's just yeah. speculation, but it's interesting that he made that decision. And, and you know, Pizazu, or the, the demon here, has that, you know, is heavily sexualized. So maybe that would be a reason to switch it to a girl to make it even more threatening. Well, I think the film ushered in two generations of parenting where kids were never allowed to even look at an Ouija board. Yeah, right. uh, exactly. No, that, that was true in my home. And, uh, Today, I would certainly never let my kids play with one, although not for a movie, but because of just just faith. I just don't think you screw around with that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, but there was actually a movie, I think, just called Ouija. There, the whole thing was centered around an Ouija board. Y'all, either of you remember that one? There's been, uh, a, there's been a few, but you're talking about an older one? Yeah, it there was, was really good. There was Witchboard, I remember. That. <laughs> Witchboard? That yeah, maybe that's it. Tawny Catan in it. So much, so much fun. But I, let's talk about the science thing just again, just just really quick. We already mentioned a little bit about the tests that were taking place and uh, kind of how invasive it was. She had to be given shots and her head put in what looked like, uh, 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 what you know, what are those things called where you can't, uh, vice grips almost mm-hmm. where she she couldn't move and then all of these things were moving around her and this huge medical equipment and the sound of it was loud and noisy and scary and uh, is one of two things here either a that was the cutting edge technology 
and Friedkin was simply filming what was cutting-edge medical technology to demonstrate how her mom was going to every medical length possible, or what I would prefer to think it is, even though maybe it's not, is Friedkin showing us that's a kind of possession and horror in and of itself, right? How would you, how how did you all take away from those? Because it shows it to us twice. Mm-hmm. So like, I think he's saying something there. I, why not both? I mean, I think it it was shot on location. Um, those, yeah. That was really a hospital. Those were, that was real equipment. But hospitals were frightening, and they're they're in a lot of cases, you know, they're they're inhuman and you know cold and antiseptic and um, you know, a little bit frightening. So I I, I think that is you know, was part of that dichotomy he was building up, you know, though I, you know, obviously the scenes with religion aren't the warmest scenes in the world. It's ice code in the room and, you know, she's turning her head all the way around and stuff, but it's still in contrast there, you know, it was humans that came to her room in a way that was all these cold technical machines that they were using to treat her with in the hospital. Mm -hmm. Well, it's a common, isn't it? That we threw our best technology at this and came up with nothing. We can't fix this. We don't know what to do. But it was the ancient faith that that answered it. So I do think that there's a commentary there. Um, you know, I'm looking at these these medical things and I'm thinking, wow, that looks so prehistoric. You know, so loud. Machines are so clunky. Um, the doctor comes out to talk to mom and he lights up a cigarette right there in his office. Yeah. I, thought, I thought that was hilarious. It just shows how dated it. But yeah. And, you know, when they, you know, those scenes with Reagan in the hospital were almost more painful to watch than the, the possession scenes. They were. Yeah. Because they, there's that one pit where, yeah, they've got her head in a lock and the, the technician says, hold still. You're going to feel something. And he takes this and they show the needle really big on the screen and they show and he sticks it in her throat. She's acting like it hurts. And then you see the blood squirt out with yeah. her heartbeats and, and, and it, it just stays on it for a few seconds. That really was uncomfortable. That was very uncomfortable. Strange. Well, it was projectile, wasn't it? It was like projectile blood. Yeah, squirting like the projectile vomiting we saw in the, Mm. you know, in the the exorcism room. So, yeah, there's something really scary in some ways about those scenes, and they didn't get the job done. It, it lets me know that I never want to have a carotid uh, angiography. That's for sure. Yeah. That was, uh, and I don't have a, fr- I'm not afraid of needles, but that was gross. Well, let me end uh, our conversation here with the most basic question. Danny alluded to this at the beginning of the podcast, but let me just, Scott, let me just ask you directly. Having watched it again today, you said, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Is the exorcist, scary I think it is it is scary it's disturbing it's uncanny it's upsetting and it you know it's not scary in the sense of so much in the sense of jumps or you know jump scares or sudden although there is at least one or two but yeah it's still very dark and and haunt I mean it, it sticks with me you know it's it's still kind of you know like a taste in your mouth i think it's scary i think it's still very very scary man i think it is too because of for me it's scary because of how 
serious, William Friedkin and Blatty takes the material and presents it to us without a lot of hokey pokey tongue in cheek. Haha, I'm trying to scare you. They just mm-hmm. show us, and it's it's so real to be so crazy. You know, again, he got a head turning all the way around, and for some reason we don't laugh it off and turn off the television. You know, it's it's just so good. What and so finish up for us, Danny here. What? How scary is the film to you uh, today? Still, I think it's still scary. I, I it's so hard to. We watch hundreds and hundreds yeah. of of horror films. Uh, I, I I chase that scare and. It's very rare that I find it. So uh, I don't know if on the rewatching that I found, and I was also kind of skimming a little bit this time. So, uh, but gosh, this film scared me so much as a child, and I still feel like it has a lot of that power to scare. Uh, that final, the final exorcism scene, the, you know, the exorcism scene is still really, really disturbing and powerful and has a, uh, hasn't aged a bit as far as I'm concerned. Hmm. Just, I, I mean, going up into the attic. To when she thought she heard rats and mm. at the beginning of the film is it's also done really well uh freaking could have made a why well, did he make another very traditional horror film or more traditional the guardian but um he uh, i think he had the chops that he could have made a, a lot of cool jump scares and stuff but he but Instead, he just, like you said, he took it very seriously and gave us uh, some really solid theological horror. Well, that's The Exorcist, 1973. Thanks for listening to us tonight. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. We would love to hear from you about your thoughts on this movie. Uh, tell us where you agree with us. Maybe you have a different take on something. We'd love to hear from that uh, about that, too. Leave us a comment on Facebook. Send us an email and uh, join the conversation with us. So on behalf of Scott and Danny, uh, we want to say thanks for listening to the first episode of the first season of The Blackest Eyes. We'll be with you again next week, and we look forward to that. Until then, stay scared and have a great day.